buckle up for some bonus time on the ITC. In this corner with Brian Campbell returns, and it's ready to invade your senses with another lethal dose of that performance-enhancing audio. Yes, the Brian Campbell is the voice that you hear with a bonus episode of interviews that you simply won't want to miss. With me to set these up and knock them down, you know him, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Hey now. Silver King, we got a pair of tasty chats today. WWE superstar Samoa Joe stops by to relive his debut year on Raw in 2017. Describe why working with Brock Lesnar is like being in a real fight. And talk about co-writing his own comic book in a WWE collaboration with Boom Studios. We'll also be chatting with Ring of Honor and NJPW star Brandi Rhodes, the wife of Cody and the new cast member of the spinoff reality show, Wags Atlanta on E. You know, Brandy's going to be talking Wrestle Kingdom, Women of Honor, the late Dusty Rhodes, and so much more. But Adam, before we toss to the sound, before we get into some specifics, got a couple topics on the mind. Let's fill up a little bonus audio here that I want to chat about. How, how, how are you today? Open the week here. South Florida, you, you chilling down there? Good temps? We doing good? Yeah, you know, we had a nice little cold streak. Down here, we don't get them often. It came and went. I was in Atlanta for it, and uh, yeah, it's a nice balmy, you know, seventy degrees right here. So uh, this is perfect time to be indoors and taping a podcast with you with yep. with a uh, little Brandy Rhodes and some Samoa Joe. You know, the B Cam will be making a a journey down to South Florida to the Fort Lauderdale office ahead of the Royal Rumble, and uh, you know, a little business to take care of. And I gotta say, I can't wait to get out of this cold. But the cold is allowing me to stay indoors and watch a lot of wrestling, Adam. And I rewatched. Jerrica Omega. Did I just really botch it that bad? Jerrica Omega. Jerrica yeah. Omega. That's a soundbite rate. That's like, that's pretty much in line with like. Not only did he not win it, I felt that he lost it. I mean, yeah, the, pro- the problem is you control the soundboard, so we'll probably never hear it. Though. That, probably, that's the issue. We'll probably never hear it. In this Campbell podcast. All right. Uh, Jerrica Omega, Adam, from Wrestle Kingdom 12. Now, rewatched it with my kids, twin uh, boys about to turn 10 years old. And I got to say something. Second time around. I screwed this up. This is a five-star match. I want to have my Mia couple right here. I want to put it out there. Teased it a little bit last week, but I think that um, I was wrong. And I think I was subconsciously wrong, Adam, because I was comparing it to the standard of the Omega six-star match and can he have a 17-star match with Jericho. And because it wasn't that, and because of Meltzer kind of jumping the scale, I overcorrected, and I think I was wrong because rewatching this a second time, Granted, I'm not working on the second rewatch like I am the first time around doing a live recap, but still, I uncovered so many little nuances and Easter eggs, and I just think that it was a five-star match under any scale, but it's more of like a 1990s five-star match, like a Bret Hart, Steve Austin, WrestleMania 13 type of five-star match, than it is the incredible, you know, out-of-control athleticism that we see today, and I think I didn't respect it enough in real time because I'm wasn't comparing it to itself. I'm comparing it to others. I don't know. My, my scale is not the same as yours, I guess, or Dave's or whomever. You know, I look at grading five-star matches or rating matches, I should say, as, you know, when I was a juvenile rating women. You know, there's only so many 10s. And to be a 10, wow. you got to be pretty damn special to be a 10. Like, there's a lot of 9.5s out there, a lot of 9.75s. But to be a 10, I mean... There's, they're really few and far between. So for me, a five-star match is few and far between. And going back and looking at this, you're talking about correcting it, you know, because Meltzer kind of went up to six stars and 6.25 stars for those Okada Omega matches. Well, 
I kind of feel like you're correcting it a little bit now because Melter called this a five-star match. I'm not saying you're playing off his rating. I'm just saying, looking back on it, I watched it a second time as well. And my, my rating stayed the same, 4.5. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I believe that I gave the Fatal 4-Way match at SummerSlam a 4.5. That's great. I mean, it's an incredible well, that's match. I enjoyed it. Fin- I enjoyed it. But to be a five star match, I mean, Jericho, I think his only five star match that I can remember is Shawn Michaels. So I like the comparison you made right there because you compared it to that car wreck. Great SummerSlam match. But the thing is, when a match like that gets a really good score, the score is a lot of times on the theatrics and the violence and the impact and all the collateral damage that goes with it. And it becomes how entertaining was this? And I think there's a ceiling in how high those matches can get rated because there's a lot, there's a certain lack of character and storyline in them because they're more fireworks and sizzle than they are steak. And I think that I just wanted to come back a second time around watching my kids pop for the big moments in this match, really focusing a little bit more on the psychology. And I just think I missed that this wasn't, in those categories of those firecracker matches that are just entertaining, this had real character, and I didn't give it the full love the first time around. I mean, it did have a lot of character, but the in-ring wrestling component of it, I'm not saying it was bad. Look, it was not bad. It was Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega. But if that component is not five stars, and you're grading, let's say, let's say you're going to grade four different parts or five different parts of the match, right? If any of them is not perfect, it's not a five-star match to me. It's close. It's 4.75, 4.5. I thought the in-ring component was good and i thought the storytelling and the rest of it was great five-star caliber so that's why i don't go to that high level for the match that's not saying it wasn't good it's not saying i didn't enjoy it but again a five-star match to me there are few of them and they're far between and you're talking hbk flair you're talking hbk jericho it takes a lot to get to that level for me and that's even agreeing that okada omega was above five stars, you know, 5.25, 5.5. 55 stars, right? Come on. Well, you know, we, you know, we're trying not to go to six on our, on our scale, let's call it. Um, but so so all that together, yes, I enjoyed the match. Yes, it was great. It still wasn't the best match on the card. And to me, it still wasn't five stars. So I I think I, I recorrect and overcorrect and, and multi-correct and say that in real time, I thought the best match of the card was the main event. I in, in now in hindsight, I think Jericho Omega, Jericho Omega, excuse me, actually was the best match on the card, and I loved, of course, the main event. And I thought the main event uh, built perfectly and took you home better than really any big match I'd seen in a long time. Like that was the perfect for me, the sort of the dr- dramatic conclusion. But I think in the end. I think this match was a little bit better, but look, look how nerdy we are. We're basically debating quarter of a star versus, you know, whatever. It's ridiculous. I want to yeah. say this one thing, though. Uh, Kenny Omega was on Chris Jericho's podcast this past week, and about an hour and 25 minutes of the two of them, like, legitimately only talking about this one match. And it's great old, it's great gold. It's 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 audio gold, Adam, because it's, like, so ridiculously in-depth inside baseball and all that. But it got me wondering, like, is this the future or could this be the future? Because look how rare this is. These two guys just put on like arguably the biggest match of the year, the biggest match of the last couple of years. And less than a week after it's over, the two of them sat down with no host to set them up and told you every intricate detail about the match, about how they set up moves and moves that were thought of on the fly and all this other great, you know, great stuff that you dream of. You never get this, Adam. Certainly not with WWE, but like you never get this. And I've been arguing for a while that now WWE is on the verge of or not on the verge, they are. They're getting mainstream sports coverage, right? Coverage from us, coverage from ESPN, coverage from everybody as if it's a sport. 
that I think WWE as a company is still a little bit behind outside of WrestleMania and even parts of WrestleMania with allowing media the type of access that's necessary if you're going to cover it like that. And part of that is almost this sort of post-access. I know they had a WrestleMania 30 post-press conference, but it was done completely in kayfabe. And I think that there's room there for fans, for media alike, to have that type of access in the future. Because how amazing would it be after like a WWE SummerSlam main event, a, a match that's like five stars, to actually hear from these guys and hear how they set it up, what they were thinking about that big spot, about what this could mean for the future. I just think that there's an opportunity there and a hearing Jericho and Omega go that deep and that, like, I was I was fired up. I was, like, real pure giddiness. So a couple points here. I think you played yourself a little bit, and this podcast is why you're narrating the match five stars. It's not just because of the match. It's because you heard this podcast and it gave you some, like, inside knowledge of like that certain could, spots wow, you enjoy that, it more that could be true that so really so could let's be true. so let's let's all take that into account now that bc kind of showed his hand here on on what's going on um i do like the general thesis that you're that you're putting forth here of less kayfabe um the post-match things like new japan does they do the press conferences although those are in kayfabe directly after the show and certainly like wwe had those with talking smack and raw talk and they still do them after the pay-per-views but they're nowhere near as good as they used to be and i enjoyed them every week i will say i have not listened to this jericho omega podcast yet so i'm saying this i'm coming in with some ignorance because i haven't listened to it but i don't like the concept of it i mean to go that in depth and break kayfabe completely fair point about a match you just had to me is like beyond what I want from wrestling. I do want that to happen. I want it like five years down the line or maybe a month at least like, or uh, six months or a year. I don't want it one week later. Like I still want to suspend the disbelief enough to say, okay, there's an ongoing storyline here and I'm not being given all the inside knowledge of what just happened. So I think, I think the bullet club in general actually does a good job of that with being in the elite. They give you a little bit of breaking kayfabe without kind of spilling the whole bag. What this sounds like is just they just said, hey, hey, guys, we just did a fake sporting event and here's everything that went down behind <laughs> the scenes. And I don't like that. Like, that's not why I watch wrestling. OK, so that's actually a fair point. As much as I would rather have the scenario I laid out, there are reasons to pause. And, and I will admit, when I press play on that podcast, my first thought was, oh, wow, they're, they're kind of giving away. Like, they just did this match against each other. They may do a, a rematch. And by the way, if you listen to that full show, you'll get the feeling that they want to do a rematch later this year. That's my personal editorial. But I almost was like, man, maybe it's a little too soon to have two guys who are just in an angry, bloody feud against each other talk to each other. So that's true. And you'd have to draw the line there and say, how much is too much? And I'm sure WWE wouldn't want to have like a UFC-style post-press conference where their performers could potentially give away accidentally by the by being questioned by the media, you know, nuggets of where things are headed. I get that. I just think, look, the lid's off, right? It's been called sports. Inter- Vince took the lid off in like when? Like the late 80s? I mean, they're, you know, like he's been calling it sports entertainment forever. Like it's it's not real. So we know it's not real. So since a lot of what they do on the WWE Network is showing you that it's not real, then why? Then you know, I because, I just think that you know, you know, you know why? Because you know, movies aren't real either. But you don't see those extra scene CGI, green screen stuff until the DVD release comes out nine months later. Okay, so it's it, it's the same way for me. It's like I I'm suspending my disbelief enough to know that what I'm watching is predetermined action, athletic predetermined action. Don't just go ahead and turn around one week later and tell me 
that everything I loved and I suspended that disbelief for, oh, here's the realness of it. Like, it's cool to know the inside details. Like, if someone gets hurt in a match, it's really nice to know, okay, that was real, that was not real, they're going to be okay, they're not going to be okay, and things like that. Uh, there's some stuff going on, you know, with Paige right now and Samoa Joe, two people who have been injured in the ring and we're trying to figure out, you know, A, is it real, is it kayfabe, and is it going to, you know, impact them for a long period of time. In this particular case, and again, I'm saying it somewhat ignorant from not listening to the show already, although I'm going to, I just don't like the entire concept of, hey, we just had an awesome match that everyone's talking about. Let's break it down for an hour and 20 minutes and give you all the inside dirt and, and details. Why don't you wait until Jericho's done with New Japan Pro Wrestling and then give that to us? And by the way, that also builds the suspense of wanting to know about it versus I just watched this match. I don't need to know about it, you know, 10 days later. There's certainly a middle ground to be had, and you obviously couldn't do it in the middle of a feud. But I just think that this opened my eyes and, and certainly got me going to say, like, I think a little more access would keep people a little more hooked, would get people a little more excited. But speaking of inside access to the real stories, Adam, I want to bring up there's a new WWE Network show called WWE Photoshoot, and they debuted an episode with The Miz. I, I know you didn't get a chance to see it. I just watched it this past week, and it's fantastic because it's a superstar sitting down looking at pictures and videos of his biggest moments and essentially telling you the inside story. So they focused a lot of that on that great promo The Miz delivered on Talking Smack in August 2016 to Daniel Bryan. Now, uh, to hear The Miz sort of break down a lot of the inside detail kind of got me fired up. And I've revealed on this show before that I was actually backstage that day at SmackDown. It was at the Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut. It was two nights after SummerSlam. And <laughs> I backstage there for six hours, had a chat with The Miz before the show went on the air, had just written a feature about him for ESPN. You know, he liked it. And he was sort of mouthing off to me about how he's just not getting the opportunities he deserves despite this renaissance run he's going through. And I'm like soaking it up and it's great. And I'm like, man, this guy is fired up. Little did I know, Adam, that we find out in the show that he finds out he's not even on the card that night. And obviously the first SmackDown after SummerSlam is setting up the, the future. He's the IC champion and not on the card. He has to be on Talking Smack. The rest is history. Calls out Daniel Bryan. And it's really one of the best promos of the past couple of years, if we're really being honest. I didn't know, Adam, that he revealed that he never told Daniel Bryan this was coming and that he fully expected Daniel Bryan to swing and hit him for how personal he took it and how willing he was to go over the line in the moment. Like... I was like, yeah, like, this is crazy stuff. Like, you don't get this type of real stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's unfair to say, I mean, you said one of the best promos in the past couple of years. I, I don't know if it's unfair to say it's one of the best promos ever. I mean, I'm not saying it's the best promo ever. I'm saying top 25, like, that's not in there. I, I think it is. Um, to find out some of that behind the scenes stuff to me is extremely interesting. And again, just kind of relating to our last topic. This is months late. What is this? A year plus later, you know? 18 months later. Fair, fair. Okay, good. That's a good enough time for me to, I've, I've experienced it. I, you know, we've, we've gone through what's happening and now WWE is going back to it. Okay. So that's kind of a good example of what I'm talking about, but no, that is interesting to me. And it, I also find it really funny that he was left off that card. He kind of threw a fit, you know, he did it again on talking smack a few months later. And then what, what was the pay-per-view where he was in an intercontinental title match or a tag team match and he was the first match of the kickoff oh, show. And they didn't let, the next SummerSlam, SummerSlam, the year later, where, with nobody in the arena. We couldn't even get in. We physically could not get in the arena in time right. to see the beginning of the match. Literally one year later, the exact same thing happens. So I always like that his gimmick is not just some you know massive celebrity Hollywood actor guy, but it's also a guy who does legitimately get passed over for opportunities yeah. in screen time, which is crazy when you consider his ability 
on the mic, although it does seem like that is now over and he's now a pretty big featured player in WWE. And you're going to like that show, Adam, because it shows and, and you forget about this when somebody's got a long career how hated he really was coming up in the locker room. And if we're really being honest, how much he's had to come through to carve out this character. But I want to go back to one thing. You you sort of took my excited hyperbole and were like, no, dude, this is really one of the greatest promos of all time. And now I'm right with you on that. And it's because it was so unscripted, right? I mean, really, at its core, it's because it was unscripted and we got to hear a reality TV-like take because it was real. It was a shoot. So that's we know that that's where the obscene level of passion comes. But I got two points to kind of spin out of that. Number one, that's how it used to be, Adam. And I know it's not reinventing the wheel to kind of be like, stuff should be less scripted, right? But growing up in the 80s, WCW Saturday night, three-hour show, flair in a studio, he would just cut that same type of promo on anybody any given week. If there was no target... He would just look at the camera and punch himself in the forehead until he bladed himself hard way. Like, that was the kind of passion that you saw. And B, this kind of put WWE in a bad spot, Adam, because this wasn't a storyline that they were entertaining. And obviously, that's maybe the genesis of why Talking Smack isn't there anymore on a weekly basis, because you can get yourself over with a storyline that they don't have plans for. But here's my bigger point about this. Because WWE didn't have plans for this, and because, like... Outside of talking smack, they didn't know what to do with it. Do you think this started the this where we're at right now with Dan O'Brien? Like, do you think that made him mad enough and got him churning? Because like, like let's look. Except for that time where two, three months later, where the Miz did it the second time, they did not entertain this storyline. Like, they haven't done anything with it. Do you think that is one of the major blocks that built up to where now Dan O'Brien is like really coming back in some form in 2018? I actually don't. Um, if you watch, I know you have not watched this. I did. I did. There was like a one week I was sick or not feeling well or whatever. And I sat and, and just binged the entire uh, show. But if you watch Total Bellas, um, I always hate referencing it. Daniel Bryan. And g- granted, that's somewhat scripted too. you. You, you know, make the assumption, obviously, with any reality television show. But Daniel Bryan is legitimately depressed. Like he went through some legit depression and has been down in the dumps ever since his career you know, was ended at least by WWE medical. So I don't think he needed the Miz to kind of kick him in the butt and get him, get him back into gear on figuring out any possible way to get back into the ring. He, that was always his mindset. Um, although it certainly, I'm sure if that was not scripted and not planned, which we might as well believe it is since they're saying so, um, it certainly didn't help. No, not at, like, uh, yeah, I, I sort of have to believe that that was a little bit of a kick of the pants and that maybe got him going. But who knows about the timelines? Who knows all of that? Um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this in the future, but there's another show straight to the source with Corey Graves. that has an interview with Enzo Amore that everyone has to watch. I want you to watch it first, Adam, then we'll react to it on our next show. But everyone get out there on the network and see that final uh, piece of business here before we throw to some interviews. Adam, we got a bonus DM slide based on our last episode coming at us from Black Saber Jr., which is at TKCXP. That's a great name. It really is. Black Saber Jr. That's really good. He's got a three-point message for us. Thanks for the weekly injection of Mark Milk. Well, come on. You you know, that's that's what we're all about. Number two, Silver King references that Undisputed Era on NXT needs some size. Is he ready to feast his eyes on a logical addition to the group, Donovan Dijak, who is currently in developmental, uh, reportedly assigned with WWE, six foot seven listed. Is that what could turn this around, Adam? So I've seen a lot of people mention him and I, there's probably been two or three occasions where he's been the name 
that I've wanted to throw out as the guy to join that group. But just being honest with you, I had no idea how to pronounce his last name. So I, rather than make a fool of myself, I just kind of left it out there and been like, hey, someone needs to be there. Um, <laughs> but I did like, it was like two or three months ago, I think someone mentioned it uh, either on Squared Circle on Reddit or someone tweeted it at me or whatever the case was. I looked him up because I wasn't too familiar with him. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like a dude like that is exactly he's the Batista. You know, it's it's just like evolution with Batista. Obviously, look, I'm not comparing, you know, Ric Flair and Triple H <laughs> to these guys, but it's the same concept. You need that big body guy to make it make it. You're not just swarmy heels who are really smart and can get away with things. You can actually physically dominate your opponents. That's what they need in addition to a name change. Well, Black Sabre Jr.'s other point was he said we mentioned about the idea of, you know, bringing up the Rousey horsewoman to the to the main. Except basically, we said, let's bring up Shayna Baszler right away, because I don't think the other two you said that are even wrestling at this point. He mentioned yeah. that Shayna's theme starts with the sound of galloping horses. And he says mm-hmm. it seems like a very heavy handed reference to who she's meant to be representing. I got to say, Black Sabre Jr., I didn't pick up on that in real time. I didn't ask you outside of this, Adam, if you have. But if so, it seems like a, that's that's a quality little tease right there. I did pick up on it. And only because I heard the music hit. And I'm like, wait, whose music begins with horses? And then Shayna Baszler came out. So I didn't necessarily draw any connection or correlation. I do, though, think it's weird that her theme begins with that when she's the queen of spades, which that doesn't fit together in any meaningful way. So maybe it is, you know, uh, kind of teasing the bag with the four horsewomen, you know, formation, although it doesn't necessarily seem like they're going in that direction anymore, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't because, you know, Marina Schaffer and Jessamine Duke apparently aren't training now. Like, who knows which direction they're going? But it does lead you to believe that the four horse women in some form will be there on, on WWE programming soon. And you would think in some form Rousey and Charlotte should be facing off for control of it or, or you know, or I started it first or no, it's my dad's legacy or whatever. Like, it, it seems. By the way, instead of, you know, doing the riot squad and absolution, you know, in as ridiculous of a manner as they did. What if they actually just let Charlotte Flair either do the four horsewomen or do something on her own where she brought up women from NXT and had a real stable like her father did, as opposed to, you know, forcing it with these other women that don't have any connection and don't make any sense. You know, she maybe she wouldn't do the four horsewomen because it's not going to be with Banks and, you know, Lynch and Bailey. So, you, you know, you can't ruin that. But, you know, Ric Flair had evolution and some other stables as well. Uh, why didn't they just do something like that? Like, it, I, I just thinking of it right now. Like, it makes so much more sense. Well, it does. But I mean, part of the part of the problem though is that Charlotte's too big. I mean, she's like the Brock Lesnar of the women's division, so she shouldn't need a crew, right? Like, she's already the genetically superior dominant force of the division. So that, even though like it's logical, that's why I liked the my idea. Well, it was started as my idea, and then one of our DMers basically said you should add Charlotte to that. But when I was talking about rebooting the a male version of the four right. women and having her in it, which was the DMers' idea, that was smart. And it was like, yeah, you know, but her leading her own, I don't even think, like, I don't think it makes a lot of sense because you're right. Like, if you give her Becky and Sasha, it's like, well, who else are they going to fight? Like, right, you can't do that. Yeah. So you're are you basically saying that they should, instead of like rebooting the uh instead of what they did with the riot squad and they should that should have been a like a charlotte thing like if they gave her Liv morgan and mandy rose and sonia deville and like one other person and she just led this group in because she wasn't getting you know whatever the reason she wasn't getting respect or you know she thought the smackdown women's division needed more you know toughness or whatever the case might be 
there was a way to go with it where it would have made sense versus like what they did was with two carbon copy, three women teams and still not having actual factions because it's not enough people. I'm not going to get into the whole rant again, but just long story short, based on this conversation and how we were going, I was just thinking, why didn't they just take an existing woman and have her bring up some women and just like you would with a guy, you know, there's guys in WWE who either aren't getting respect or that they're having problems or whatever the case and they form their own faction. Look, that's exactly what they should have done with the women. That's all I'm saying. I think it's just, you know, Vince doesn't like factions. I think we would think we've learned that now in the modern right, No, he, do, he doesn't like the thing that saved his, like completely saved his company and made it the hottest thing in, in sports and entertainment in the, in the nineties and early two thousands. It seems like he doesn't like valets. He certainly doesn't like managers, right? I mean, who, who's a manager outside of Paul Heyman and part-time Titus O'Neil? Like, I mean, it's just like it's crazy. It's, it's tough. All right. Adam, the before... things that, the things that actually worked for them, he doesn't like. Well, exactly. It's, it's really funny. We want to uh, announce, Adam, that uh, the week of Royal Rumble, we want to bring back pay-per-view rewind, my favorite segment that we've ever done, and we want it to be dealer's choice, viewer's choice, listener's choice, however you want to say it. So what does that mean for you, dear listener? Send in your Royal Rumble match that you want to hear us break down the week, our own go-home episode ahead of the Royal Rumble. Hit us up. Uh, slide in them DMs at B Campbell CBS at Silverstein Adam at the Costos. There's a big rumor. I mean, for all the all the talk, Adam, of people coming back for the Rumble, you know, or coming to the Rumble like Rousey. Hey, Nick Costos is coming to the Rumble potentially on this show to make his own comeback. But send it to our at in this corner CBS Twitter handle. We'll collect your votes. We'll choose the best one, and we will dive in and dig deep. <laughs> Oh, just a little tease right there, Adam. So to clarify for them, are we pay-per-view rewinding a Royal Rumble match or a Royal Rumble pay-per-view? A Royal Rumble match. Okay. So send those in to at in this corner CBS along with our personal Twitter handles and we will pick one. History will tell you we've already done the 1992 Royal Rumble on the show with Flair winning. So anyone... But that one and, and, don't, and all you hosers, don't be giving us the hacksaw Jim Duggan one. Come on. We don't we don't want anything. Don't want Give us something that's either great or terrible. Let's let's go to an extreme. Yeah, let's let's not have it there. All right, Adam, let's get to the talks. Let's get to the sound here. Let's get kicking off to Brandy Rhodes. Oh, yeah. Time to talk about that revolution, Adam. Your favorite topic. She's a pro wrestler with Ring of Honor in New Japan. The wife of the great Cody. Don't call him Rhodes. But beginning this month, she's a reality television star in the first season of Eags Wags Atlanta, which airs Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. Brandy Rhodes joins us on CBS Sports. Brandy, welcome to the In This Corner podcast. So much we want to get talking to you about in the world of wrestling, but this is pretty big news with what's going on on this E! Atlanta Wag show. Congratulations on all your success. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. For wrestling fans, I think it's cool to to see, you know, the genre that we all love continue to break out of the mold and, and cross over in more ways into pop culture, into, you know, beyond the walls of just the, the four sides of the ring. How did this opportunity come to you and how excited were you to take a part in it? Uh, so actually, they casting for the show sought us out. Um, they got in touch with my management and it was as simple as a Skype interview. And the next thing I knew, they were offering me a contract to do the show. Um, 
what a lot of people don't know is Cody and I have been being pursued for other areas of television for quite some time. And this is not the first call that we ever got regarding reality television. So um, it just ended up being a natural fit. The timing was right. Um, so we decided that this would be what we would jump on board with uh, kind of as a first dive into what they call unscripted television. <laughs> Now, your first episode will premiere Wednesday, January 17th. The show chronicles, you know, the personal and professional lives of several high-profile sports couples, this one focusing in Atlanta. So I assume there's going to be some drama involved. Can you tell us what was the taping of this like? How, how fun was this for you? So taping the show was very interesting. Um, I still maintained my full wrestling schedule uh, while trying to film the show. So I think that that was probably the, the most shocking thing to everyone else. I think a lot of times when people embark on doing something in reality television, they kind of go 100% for broke. Like they will clear their schedules and they will sell their firstborn child to be on that camera as much as possible. Whereas when it was me, it was like, hey, Brandy, can you film something? And I was like, oh, no, I've got this show in Nashville. I know <laughs> I have to do, you know, I have all these other responsibilities. I Once I say yes to something, it is very difficult to get me to say no, unless it's extreme circumstances. So um, filming, you know, at a restaurant, chatting with the girls wasn't always extreme circumstances to me. So I still had to maintain um, all of my career commitments as well. So a lot of times I'm walking off of a plane and going right into shooting a scene, um, which was very, you know, interesting. <laughs> there were a lot of times where I was very, very tired, but, you know, still glad to have the opportunity to be working on this other project. Oh, absolutely. It, it's got to be cool because, you know, we, we all came to know you through WWE, you know, originally as a wrestler, then as a ring announcer, Eden Styles. But this seems like a great opportunity to get to know the real you. So how important is that for you, you know, simultaneously with, with what's really going on in your wrestling career, which has been great to watch? Um, the, the real aspect has been first and foremost for me. Um, and that is something that I hope that you will see flushed out in the episodes that I am in on the show. Um, it, it was so important to me to be authentic that um, I think that's why you, you will miss me in some episodes that in the schedule, of course, sometimes I just simply wasn't there to film for, for certain events and things. But um, I made a point to make sure to tell them, Hey, my life, as it is, I think it's interesting enough. We don't have to make something a mole, a mountain out of a molehill in situations, things like that. I think that when you really relate to people on a normal level about normal things, it goes further than when you embellish and <laughs> try to reach for the stars as far as, you know, what's going on in your life. Um, so that's what, what I did, and that's what I held to. Um, the things that I discussed on the show are real things in my life. Um, you'll see a little bit of the wrestling of the, you know, me trying to gain more in this world as a, as a wrestler, and um, it's all very authentic. There's um, no, no, uh, no shades being pulled. We've just let the blinds up and, you know, let a little light in, and the camera's with them. I think they call that a shoot, Brandy. This is pretty much a shoot. <laughs> 
I guess so. Well, let's talk about that transition into wrestling because, uh, you know, similar to what Cody did in leaving WWE and making such a huge mark on the independent scene with a lot of big things to come, you simultaneously did the same but on your own, going to Impact Wrestling, now doing a lot of big things with the Ring of Honor. What was that transition like for you after being away for so long? You know, originally you came on as a wrestler. Not a lot of people maybe remember that, but you've caught on really quick, made some huge leaps in a short time. How has that process been? Um, It's been such a learning experience. Um, I feel like every time I get in the ring, I absorb so much more. I feel like a, like a kindergartner, you know, they say, they say they absorb everything. They, they hear everything, they get it. Um, So, I've just been really enjoying time in as I can with as many different people as I can so that I can just learn and grow and and hang on to as much as, as I can. Um, That has been a, a very positive so far experience, but you know, not without bumps in the road. Um, There've been plenty of mistakes and little injuries here and there and things like that, but um, it's been very rewarding and I wouldn't change it for the way that I've done it for anything. The timing seems to be really cool for you. And the fact that, you know, women's wrestling is at, is at such a, I mean, you know, the word revolution gets thrown a lot around a lot, but such a progressive time for that. And certainly, you know, we're seeing it this month with WWE launching the first women's Royal rumble match. We're going to see it with ring of honors, 16 women, women of honor tournament to crown the first ROH women's champion. That'll begin January 20th in Nashville. How, what does this significance mean to you to have your career taking off at the same time that there's more opportunities for women to do legitimate pro wrestling than ever before? Well, it's just a testament to the saying that, you know, timing is everything and everything doesn't happen when you want it to happen. It happens when it's supposed to happen. So who's to say that if I was wrestling five years ago that I'd even still be around in wrestling? Who, who knows? You know, everything I think has happened the way that it was supposed to happen. And I'm just right here in the middle of it, which is great. It's fantastic. Like you said, women's wrestling has really taken off over the past couple of years. It's continuing to grow. We're seeing great things from women all over the world doing all sorts of things that were, were never expected to be done by women in, in the in the wrestling role. So um, I'm just really excited, and I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm definitely thrilled about the upcoming Women of Honor Championship Tournament. Um, I just can't wait to get in there and fight for it. If uh, The timing is, is great for you know anything going on outside the walls of WWE right now in wrestling because uh, maybe it's technology, maybe it's the ease that we can, that we can reach the, the other stuff going around the world, but independent wrestling is taking off. I mean, at such a fast pace where I argue so much on this podcast that, you know, the wrestling I'm seeing at the highest level at ring of honor, or certainly an NJPW is as good or many times better than what's going on in WWE. And we saw you a big part of that wrestle kingdom 12 show in Japan just recently by Cody's side for that match with Kota Ibushi. And not only did I think Brandy that that match really tried its best to steal the show. I came away going, you two as a heel duo was one of the bigger pops I had watching that entire night. How much fun is that to get to work with Cody and be so entrenched in a storyline like that and have some of those moments like outside the ring when you feign injury against Kota Ibushi and you and Cody laugh afterwards after tricking him? Uh, You know, moments like that, that takes 
so many things for it to, to all come together. Um, you know, especially when you're in an arena that size, uh, everything has to be just right for people to get it and understand what just happened. And uh, it was kind of fate that the camera caught that detail of us of laughing because <laughs> you never know. Sometimes they can't. They, they're, they're not going to get everything that's going on. There's a million things happening at ringside. So um, that was that was a moment that just it all happened kind of like lightning in a bottle. And I'm so happy that it's good. Um, you know, being out there with Cody is, it, it's exhilarating to get to be these, these larger than life characters together. And, um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, I always have said in the, in the realm of, of entertainment in general, um, especially like in acting, whenever something comes across, uh, my desk to read that is evil. I'm I'm for it. I'm a hundred percent for it. Everybody, I think, knows that I'm a super huge horror junkie. So evil is just kind of <laughs> something that I like to tap into. Um, <laughs> so any any chance that I get to to be over the top and evil, I just love it. Just love it. And I'm just now getting to experience these moments and and, and getting to play around with those things and also with Cody in these moments. And it's just, it's just fantastic. I love it. I think a lot of people who listen to this show uh, specifically would be curious about what it's like working in Japan at the highest level, because this whole new Japan product is new to, to a lot of people listening to this show, but we're intoxicated by it because it just feels raw and it feels different from a performer standpoint. How different is it working out there on the highest level compared to what you've done in the U S man, Japan is so different. To me, the culture is so different, and it has such a such an air of respect. Everything about it, you, you want to be respectful. You want to um, earn your keep being there. And uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a wild, um, very hard to explain experience of just such positive, good, respectful energy from the fans, from the people you're working with. Um, the entire time I was there, I, I had a wonderful time. And I would say that the, the best thing about it is from the absolute top to the absolute bottom, there is such a, it's such a great environment to learn in. Um, you don't feel like you don't belong, if that makes sense. Um, you, you absolutely do feel like you should be there. You should be a part of it. And, um, it's, it's just really an, an interesting culture to, to be a part of. I'm just excited and grateful that they've taken a liking to me. <laughs> Brandy, we sort of call what's going on with the Bullet Club in, in New Japan the revolution on the show because I feel like for the first time in many years, you know, devoted hardcore wrestling fans who maybe have only watched WWE for so long have real competition. Maybe it's not financial competition. It's certainly critical competition. We see you as part of the being the elite, you know, web show on YouTube. We see you at NJPW at ring of honor. Do you have the same feeling as a performer that something's brewing, that something's building here that we could be entering, let's say a boom period as a pro wrestling audience. And, and, and as a, as an industry that we haven't seen since the attitude era. Oh, uh, let me be the first to let you know we're in it. 
we are in it a hundred percent. This, this time in wrestling is, is a time that will be talked about in the future because it's a very important time. It's a time where people's eyes are opening up to how vast the world of wrestling is. And that is a great thing because there's so much to be gained from not having tunnel vision. And that only makes everybody want to perform at their absolute top. What could be bad about that? (laughs) I can't see anything wrong with that, you know? So every time every individual wrestler steps into the ring, they have that, first of all, they have that knowledge that I can make history in what I'm doing here, which is amazing because it hasn't always been that way. And also that someone else could make history. So let me be the one to do it. Um, it's very cool. It's a very competitive kind of vibe and atmosphere, but, but very positive. The energy is up. Um, the fans' energy is up. It's an it, electric period in time, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. It's amazing. But, yeah, no, Brian, we're in it. So, so, so buckle up. <laughs> okay, so that gets me fired up. And certainly we got to give credit. Somebody like Kenny Omega deserves a lot of credit for the match quality and raising that awareness. But I made an argument on the show a couple times that Cody joining this revolution and bringing his name seemed to be another major turning point. How long did it take you to sort of feel that, that his – his role in this was really helping this thing gain steam. Oh, I knew from the beginning. Um, I, you, you, I guess you could call me a doting wife, but I was right. So maybe not. Um, we'll see if I ever have kids <laughs> the same way with them that, Oh no, they're going to be the star. And then maybe if they become the star, Hey, maybe I have a sixth sense, but I knew from the beginning my husband was going to do something huge. Now, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but I knew that it was going to be huge. And I knew that because my husband loves wrestling more than anybody that's ever lived. I will bet my life on that. Like anybody that's ever lived, he loves wrestling so much more. So when you love something that hard and that much and your passion for it is just that incredible you have no choice but to hone all of that energy and put it into something good. And that's what he's done. He spends hours and hours and hours a day focused on wrestling. And when he's not working on his own wrestling, he's studying the craft of others. And he's not studying it passively. He's studying it aggressively. So he is kind of like a, like a wrestling scientist almost. He has that creative bone that comes of course from his incredible father and he has that natural raw talent and now he's surrounded by a bunch of guys that also love wrestling beyond belief so when you have a group like that that's together all the time and and just thriving off of each other you're going to get incredible results so I didn't know exactly how he was going to be doing this but I knew he was going to be doing this uh, I like the way you broke that down a lot. I'd like to mention there too of the great of the late great Dusty Rhodes and I'm you know curious even for you cuz because every WWE superstar we have on this podcast inevitably talks about their time in NXT when Dusty helped them get to that next level as a daughter-in-law. I'm sure you have great personal memories, but professionally how much did he influence you? Uh professionally 
he's that type of guy that no matter what it is that you want to do, it's not out of reach to him. So you can tell him whatever dream you want. And he already is going to see that as a reality. So if I were to say to Dusty, hey, Dusty, I want to be the Women of Honor champion, he would say, okay, well, here's the thing. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's the goal. And then now we've just got to fill in the blanks and get you there. And he believed that. He believed that with everyone. Um, he, he showed that, that same investment with everybody who would really, really put that energy out towards him. So um, I definitely had, had plenty, plenty of, of help from him. And I respected every single opinion he gave me, especially creatively. I think that's kind of where we, we bonded the most because at that point in time, you know, I was doing a job that he didn't ever really do, but I was always a part of promo class and, you know, creative class, all of those things. And he would always uh, stay after with me and talk about what I did and talk about what do I want to do and how are we going to make this something great? Every idea I had, he was a hundred percent behind it, which also a very, very interesting story uh, with Dusty is my um, dog, Colby Jack, my little Pomeranian, he is the only dog that was ever a part of promo class because I wanted him to be a part of promo class with me. And I wanted him to be a part of my act, a part of my deal. So Colby Jack was at promo class almost every week at the performance center for, for a very long time. (laughs) <laughs> and that was because of Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. And I love, by the way, how you started talking about the American dream by saying no dream was too big for Dusty. That's a great honor to everything he did. Brandy Rhodes, I could talk to you forever here. You know, Brandy, your brand is in a good spot when I have four to five things I can plug right here. So that's when you know you're doing really good. We can't wait to see you in the Women of Honor tournament with Ring of Honor, which starts January 20th in Nashville. We can check you out every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific time on E-Wags Atlanta. And in closing, Brandy, because this is very timely right now, a lot of tweets on my timeline today about Cody's all-in show September 1st, maybe filling a 10,000-seat arena, just maybe, Brandy, this feels like a big deal. Can you tell us anything about it at this point? Uh, I can just tell you that I, I think ten thousand seats isn't going to be enough. That's my that's my gut feeling. But <laughs> we we will of course see. Um, I, I think I think it's it's a great time for wrestling fans, and that if if you don't jump at every opportunity to be a part of something really cool and historical, then I don't know, man. I, I, I'm all in. Are you all in, Brian? Oh, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the leaders of, of, of hitting the drum for this revolution. I'm all in for this September 1st. <laughs> Somebody get my boss on the line. we got to book travel right now. I'm fired up for this. <laughs> awesome. Brandy, thanks so much for your time. Best of luck for, luck for you in the future. I mean, you don't need the luck. you got a lot of great stuff going on. Hey, maybe we see you with that ROH title around your waist. It would not be a bad thing. Looking forward to checking it out. Thank you so much, Brian. All right, Ab, you heard it. I, I, was, I got a little fired up. I got a little giddy there, all right? You know, you know, maybe I buttered it up too much. But you know when we're talking about revolution, it's going to get me fired up. And when Brandy's like, hey, Brian, you all in? You know I'm all in, Brandy. Come on. Come on, Adam. So bad. I mean, the, the interview was great. Brandy was great. You were great, except for the fanboy stuff. That was 
I mean, cringeworthy, I would call it. But, you know, <laughs> to give her credit, I mean, she's on the inside here, her and Cody. But uh, I don't think she's wrong, Adam. I don't think she's wrong that, you know, I've preached on this show forever that things are changing. But, you know, something that she said did stick out to me, that we will look back and remember this time, right? Like that this will be not something that leads to something, but that we're already in it. We're already in the special time that we will remember. It's not just, you know, this could lead to something Whatever this ends up leading to, it already is, and we're already in it. And if you wake up and really realize that, from the quality of the wrestling outside of WWE to even WWE itself at, in certain pockets and, and the accessibility and the WWE network, I mean, this is a pretty incredible time to be a wrestling fan. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all excited about where professional wrestling is heading, particularly outside of WWE. Some of us have greater expectations and believe things have progressed to a greater level than others. Obviously, I'm talking about you versus me and Nick's probably right in between both of us. Um, but I don't know really what you what else you expected her to say in given the questions and given given the circumstance. She's certainly not going to say, well, I don't really think we're going to sell at 10,000 seats and I don't think this is going to work. And my husband's decision to leave WWE, man, that was a terrible one. Like she's not going to say any of that. <laughs> obviously, things are working out really well for them. And, and that's great. And, and certainly Cody's decision to leave WWE was a great one for his particular career. The question is, if there's another person, let's say Neville, just as an example, although there were reports that they were trying to get him back and, and so on and so forth. But if there's another person who tries to do the same thing as Cody, is it necessarily going to work when they don't have that same pedigree behind their name and maybe they don't have the same gumption and you know stick to to go out and make something of themselves the way that he and his wife have? I don't know, but it's obviously working for them. And the group, the Bullet Club and New Japan and Ring of Honor that they have associated themselves with are doing really good, exciting things right now. And, you know, just one point back to the revolution. I talk a lot on this show about the revolution of somebody creating competition for WWE. But it's like even I need to go a little bit more macro and just be like, you know, the quality of the product that we're seeing. We want it to be more consistently good. But obviously the in-ring stuff we're seeing today, when you go back and compare it to stuff on the network, I mean, that's a big reason why I'm a second-by-second, day-by-day super fan again, because the quality of the athleticism and the wrestling is just through the roof. So if the, the, if the revolutionary things that I get excited about do come together, Adam, and, and JPW gets hot and invades America, and it forces WWE to be better, and we see these super cards and these super matches, and maybe it goes a little bit more mainstream wrestling in general you know it keeps improving in that regard is this a real boom period when are you adam silverstein going to agree that this could be you know in my lifetime of watching wrestling which began in 1984 which you know was right when vince national and launched mania the next year so i've seen two boom periods i've seen 85 to about 88 89 for the first you know four or five wrestlemanias and i've seen the attitude era i don't think there's ever been another era Okay, like, yeah, you know, I love ruthless aggression and, you know, whatever. But like, I don't think really that there's ever been another era. I think this is the new era. I mean, possibly you have to remember growing up as a wrestling fan and even through the Attitude Era, there were only so many content choices. Let's look at this as on a macro level, because that's really what you're talking about here. There are only so many content choices. You could watch cable TV. You could watch premium networks like HBO and Showtime. You could order pay-per-views. That's about it. I mean, you can get some VHSs and DVDs, and those are your entertainment options. Right now, there's a streaming service for every genre and subgenre of entertainment that you could possibly want. You got to pay $9.95 a month for all of them or more. So 
I don't ever think that wrestling in the United States is going to be as big as it was at the height of the Attitude Era and the comp- the Monday Night Wars between WWE and WCW. That doesn't mean there's not a place for it. There is. We're still watching it right now. It still does extremely well. But in terms of this revolution, quote unquote, and I always have to say it with the quotes because, Brian, it's not there yet. It might be there might be some rumblings, but it's not there yet. Um, I, I think until there is a true either number two to WWE or something that is pushing Vince McMahon or whoever is leading WWE creative at that time to truly take some risks and be a lot better on a night by night, week by week basis. I don't necessarily think there's going to be something that you could really consider the revolution. Let me ask you this. Let me throw it back to you. If things progress as they are now, maybe there's 10% more interest in the new Japan and ring of honor product, right? And NJPW crosses over to the U.S. and they have two shows a year and it's really good and we're able to watch it and their streaming service gets a little bit better. Is that not good enough? That's not. I think you need to get better than that. I think you need the uh, the weekly U.S. show that everybody has access to on TV because as much as we're all looking to the streaming networks and the digital and that is the future – TV is still the, the the money, the backbone, the backbone for exposure, the backbone for everything, right? That's why the TV deal for both the UFC and the WWE is, and ESPN, it's like still like the backbone of what everybody's doing, right? Digital is will is where everything's going, but the backbone, the foundation is still TV, and I think that NJPW has to be on that level to really be a competitor. But I just think that they are playing a part in the overall push for pro wrestling to be the best it's ever been and so, to be accepted more than it's ever been. And maybe to go back to TV, maybe going back to network TV. If WWE does that in the next TV, uh, next TV deal, maybe there's some, you know, I mean, Saturday night's main event was a big deal in the late eighties, you know, to sort of put it in front of people. Maybe we go, maybe that's a big part of it too. I just think, I just think again, just double back on that point. We're not there but we're also it's also already started. We're in the middle is what I'm saying. Well, I, I, you actually didn't answer. I, I might have phrased the question wrong. You didn't necessarily answer the, the question I was getting at. I'm not asking you if, if, if that's good enough for it to be considered a revolution and a c- competitor WWE. I'm talking about you, Brian Campbell, pro wrestling fan who currently watches WWE weekly and enjoys the NJPW product and occasionally the Ring of Honor product when those when it gets mixed in you know, with basically the Americans that we're talking about bullet club, basically at, at this point, is it good enough for you as a pro wrestling fan? If it is, if it just continues to be as it is right now, 10% better, maybe one or two more WWE names guys you're familiar with get integrated into it. And they continue to do one or two NGPW shows in the United States. Is it good enough for you as a pro wrestling fan to say, I'm going to continue watching this and continue enjoying this secondary product? Because for me, it is, I don't need more than necessarily I'm getting right now outside of easier access. Yeah, I think that would be good enough for me. I mean, I want to get excited about four or five NJPW events a year. You know what I mean? I want it to be, and like like I said, like the ultimate, the mission statement, the ultimate goal is I want WWE to be better. And Adam, you could argue for how good the last two Raws were, which coincided with NJPW's Wrestle Kingdom and all the attention with Jericho, maybe NJPW has pushed them to a degree. And also, Adam, when we look back on 2017, the past few weeks, what was the best time to be a wrestling fan outside of the last month ahead of Mania? What was the best time in 2017 to be a WWE wrestling fan? It was the summertime, right? It was Great Balls of Fire through SummerSlam, which coincided with the G1 tournament with NJPW. So maybe, Adam, we're already getting there. And I think that 
that's my that's my goal and my want. One has to influence the other. So yeah, I would be fine with that if WWE. I want WWE to be better, right? That's the ultimate goal. Yeah, I just think it's worth pointing out that that summertime there's also no NFL, and right now those last two Monday nights coincided with the college football playoff where WWE really needs to put on a good show to try to get some ratings. So we'll give NJPW some credit. Where NJPW deserves the most credit right now is for the reformation of the Balor Club in WWE. Outside of that, I'm not really prepared to give them too much credit for what's going on with the current product. And, you know, Ring of Honor will be a, a player in this when you consider that, you know, they can use, they're, they're sharing a lot of that same talent. And I think if they can just continue to grow as well, then it, it look, it's just better. Like, you know, I mean, maybe they can end up on a level that ECW was compared to the two big brands. I mean, that's like, it's just, you just want more options out there. You want to, it's great. I mean, WWE is already making you watch so many hours a week of options, but I'd almost rather them go less amount of hours, but better quality. Maybe they'll get pushed into that. Again, special thanks to, to Brandy Rhodes. I'd love to have her on again, Adam, just to go deep about her WWE history as Eden Styles, which we really didn't get to touch. And if you're a combat sports fan and listen to the other shows in the ITC, uh, heavyweight boxing champion Deontay Wilder is also on this season of WAGS Atlanta, which is the debut season because it's a spinoff of the WAG show which, uh, you know, wife and girlfriends, whatever that, that acronym stands for. But uh, Deontay Wilder, the champ on that show, I'm going to definitely have to check that out, Adam. I don't know if you get into e-reality shows. I mean, you know, total divas, I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I happen to watch that, that Total Bella show, but uh, maybe I'll give this a shot. I do like the city of Atlanta, and I do like WAGs, so why not? All right, there we go. WAGs, WAGs that up. All right, Adam, let's toss it over to Samoa Joe, who's got a lot to talk about in full disclosure here. This was recorded the day of his injury on Raw, when he hurt his foot, he's going to be out for some time. So that was not addressed. And also the audio quality, not at the level we expect and want, Adam. But I, I say this to the dear listener. If you stick through this, there's a lot of gold in this interview. Very pleased to welcome in the CBS Sports Podcast, Samoa Joe, ahead of the January 17th launch of Boom Studios' latest WWE comic book series. This is issue number 13 celebrating the 25th anniversary of Monday Night Raw, which, of course, airs January 22nd, 8, 7 Central on the USA Network, the anniversary episode. But Samoa Joe, this is about the latest comic book series, and this series has been incredible. The one you're a part of here, issue number 13, the story called Undrafted, kind of re- revealing the behind-the-scenes run of your journey through NXT to your January 2017 Raw debut. A big part of this story involved Mick Foley. How much was this a sort of an accurate portrayal of your of how you entered into the company i think it was uh it's a uh, it's kind of a you know a collection of events that actually spanned probably a far greater amount of time than uh than the, than the time that the last few stories but um yeah it, it's kind of you know, basically kind of a, a a small collection of different uh different incidences that led to my eventual emergence on the raw roster you know i mentioned mick foley there it's kind of explained to us what how important was his role in this. I mean, you know, it's funny when you talk about uh, people who um, aggressively pushed for me to uh, come to the WWE. Uh, you know, the, one of the first guys that always will come to mind is, is Mick Foley. I mean, uh, when I worked with him, you know, uh, early in my career. Uh, he was, you know, he's an awesome individual. He's always uh, he very much understands the plight of the up and comer. As he, you know, he has a very uh, long history of, of, of his journey to the WWE. So, um, you know, when I when I had the opportunity to work with him, uh, different organizations around the country, uh, you know, he, he was constantly bringing me up 
to, to, to Mrs. Manhunter and Stephanie, and uh, he was very, very instrumental in at least uh, introducing the idea of Samoa Joe to WWE. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Samoa Joe, like I mentioned, this number 13 edition of this uh, Boom Studios series, this has been fantastic. I mean, I'm not a big comic book mark, but I'm a mark for this series. I mean, the, the covers alone are suitable for framing. For this one, you co-wrote this story with Michael Kingston of Headlock Frame. He authored that really good uh, AJ Styles Royal Rumble special as well that we recently saw. What's the actual process like of, of co-writing your own comic book? I got to imagine this is sort of unique and cool. It is pretty unique. Uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of working with Mike once before, actually on on Headlock, and uh, you know, submitted a story and worked on a story with him. And uh, you know, Mike is a tremendously talented individual who, in my opinion, has written the best uh, you know wrestling based comic book uh, that, that is you know currently out right now, or that's probably has ever been released. Um, you know, he, he's a guy that you know is, is, takes time to, uh, to you know know the subject matter. I mean, uh, you know, you'll see Mike uh, consistently. Uh, wrestling events backstage at shows, uh, you know, picking the minds of great, uh, wrestling, uh, wrestlers and, and wrestling bookers alike. And, uh, you know, Mike has, has made, uh, an effort above and beyond a lot of other, um, uh, comic writers who have taken on this material to really, um, you know, understand, uh, the, the nuances of, of what we do. And, um, you know, working with Mike is, is going really, really fun. I mean, uh, you know, a couple collaborative phone calls, you go back and forth, we, uh, you kind of talk about, you know, concepts and ideas. And then, uh, you know, you'll generally, you know, try to start running the dialogue and then, you know, I'll tweak it here and there. And, um, you know, the, the, the collaborative process with Mike is always really awesome. And uh, he does a really great job and he's using enough of himself in the material that, you know, it, it is a true collaboration. So uh, it's, it's always a, it's always a good time uh, to give him a chance to work with him. Well, the story, Joe, is about, like we mentioned, your your debut on Raw, the run you had last year. And, you know, being honest, looking back at the year that was, the times where you were on top in Raw over the summer was really, I thought, WWE's best stretch of the entire year from your feud through Lesnar through the four-way battle at SummerSlam. Your stock personally during that stretch couldn't have been any higher. You you were, you know, a believable main eventer. I, I felt you could have had the belt and it would have been perfectly fine. But then you suffer that knee injury in August that shelves you through October. Considering the timing, how tough was that to go through? Um, you know, I, I think injuries in general are tough to go through, but uh, they're to be expected. You know, uh, you know that being said, you know, I, I, with, with that injury, you know, it was kind of a chronic injury that I, I'd had for a long time. Uh, it, you know, culminated basically, and uh, you know, luckily for me, my first surgery ever. Uh, you know, in my entire career, you know, that you know directly really stressful that put me out for any amount of time. But um, you know. It, Getting through those those tough times and regaining momentum, I think that's kind of a testament to uh, uh, you know the, the, the better athletes in, in, in this industry. So uh, you know it, it's a challenge and always is. You got to kind of take it on that way. And, uh, whenever you have a uh, whenever you're set back, uh, you know uh, with an injury or, or, or an absence, you know you got to know you have to come back and you got to work almost tenfold to uh, to reestablish your momentum. And um, you know we've done a pretty good job so far. And um, you know, I, I just, it, it, it was a tough go, but uh, like most things, uh, you get through it and get, you get on. Sure, sure. Uh, Joe, we talked last time we had you on this show. It was right in the middle of that run with Lesnar, and you talked highly of, you know, how instrumental getting to work with Paul Heyman behind the scenes was for your character during that stretch. I thought really the high point was that June 5th episode of Raw when you sunk in the coquina clutch on Paul, you whispered in his ear. 
we have a you know panel vote on this show when we did the year-end awards. That segment earned segment of the year, moment of the year, if you will, for WWE as a whole in 2017. Can you sort of take us back to how that segment was conceived and, and set up? Um, you know, generally, it's, it's Paul has an amazing understanding for, uh, uh, I, I guess, theatrics. You know, he, he understands uh, what resonates with people, and 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 you know, we were very much of the same mind of, of what we find uh, to be truly terrifying, not um, uh, seemingly terrifying. I guess you know, sometimes you get guys out there who uh, feel that uh, you know that that really uh, brash, uh, screaming uh, type of uh, uh, delivery is, is what's going to achieve terror. But, I mean, you know, when you really look back, and, and I think this is something that me and Paul uh, kind of agreed on was, you know, you, you look back at some of the truly terrifying characters that, you know, you'll, you'll ever encounter or you'll see in television film. Um, you know, they have this kind of silent confidence about them, you know, almost a, a lethal efficient type of delivery that is, uh, that wastes no emotion because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to, uh, to, to fear somebody who's emotional. It's another thing to fear somebody who has no emotion whatsoever. So, um, I think that, uh, almost the sociopathic vibe was something that we really wanted to convey. And, um, you know, we sat down, we talked about it, uh, you know, kicked out some ideas. I know there was a little bit of pushback initially about me. You know, speaking to Paul off mic because it's just kind of a, a you know, a cardinal uh, a sin in, in, in some circles when it comes to what we do. But uh, uh, I think uh, the, the segment kind of uh, really uh, succeeded, uh, you know, to our expectations, maybe even a little bit beyond. And anytime you're in there working with somebody like Paul, who's tremendous at what he does, um, it, it makes it that much easier. It was just kind of a, the perfect storm of the, the right elements and, and the right minds kind of coming together and putting something out there for them for the fantasy. Yeah, I love the way you break that down. And, and look, I mean, it was a it was a big year for big segments when you got something like the Festival of Friendship out there. So, so you know, we really appreciated what you did in that segment on this show. And certainly that feud, short-lived against Lesnar, but that's, you know, heavyweight professional wrestling at its finest through Great Balls of Fire. Brock can get a... I guess a rough reputation from what leaks out of wrestling, you know, uh, from the mainstream. Sometimes we get that that ear that he's difficult to work with. How was your experience in setting up that feud with him? Um, I, I think uh, when you're dealing with Brock Lesnar, you have to show up uh, ready to, to to deal with Brock Lesnar. I mean, uh, you know, Brock's the type of guy that you know he's not going to give you an inch. You know, if you're going to get anything from him, you're going to have to take it, and uh, he's going to dare you to take it. And he's gonna, you know, he, he blocks, uh, you know, he, he's a very, he's a, he's a, he's a guy who's kind of feeds off emotion. And, uh, you know, if, if you come out and you're flat and, uh, you're, you're not putting out what he's putting out, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna eat you alive. And, uh, you know, that's never been an issue with me. I mean, anybody who's ever wanted to, you know, uh, see me go out there and, and, and pull some emotion out and act like, uh, you know, make like we're gonna get down, uh, you know, that's, that's what I specialize in. I mean, that's not, that's, that's something that I do, and, and, and it's something I've, that I've done over my, the, the breadth of my career. And uh, with Brock Lesnar, regardless of who he is, he's going to be no different. And Brock knew that. And, and Brock understands that now. I mean, I ain't found that we're going to be in the ring together. Brock knows he's, he's coming for a fight. And uh, I mean, both, you know, literally and figuratively. I mean, there's no uh, there's no pull against Brock. If, if, he, if he shows signs of weakness, he's, in, he's an apex predator. He's going to pounce on it, and he's going to attack, and he's going to overwhelm. And, uh, 
you know, you just you have to you have to know how to deal with yourself when you're in those rocks. You're the evil person and you're gonna accept nothing but the very best. And if you don't bring the very best then uh you know you'll have no problems uh uh you know doing everything you can to uh successfully wipe you out. Joe, your character, your moveset, it's always been very MMA-centric. And, we've, you know, we've seen the crossovers in the past from Lesnar, Punk to Lashley, even Jack Swagger now wanted to get into the MMA cage. I don't assume this is a still, you know, a goal in your career at this point, considering where you're at. But had there ever been a time where you were close, considering you trained in judo, jiu-jitsu, muay thai, to, to making a run at a professional fighting career? Um, it's, it's all, like... I, you know, I've had the tremendous fortune that, uh, you know, some of my best friends growing up, a lot of family, a lot of, a lot of guys that I consider, you know, very, very close, uh, have been, uh, extensively involved in MMA throughout its history from its inception to this very day. And, uh, you know, I've always, uh, you know, been, been a member of the gym. I've always been, uh, on, uh, some team or another. So, uh, you know, it, it's always been kind of a presence in my life. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, I, I love what I do and, uh, you know, I, I love, I love professional wrestling. I love sports entertainment. And, um, you know, I think at this point in my career, knowing what my friends and my close family go through in training and sacrifice, um, I think it'd be disingenuous to them for me to say, oh, well, I'm going to take this fame and parlay it into a fighting career. I know other people have, and I don't fault them for that. And I think it's awesome. I think you should follow your dreams and do what you want to do. But, you know, at the other end, I've also, I've also been a part of these training camps for a lot of these guys. And I've seen the struggles and the heartache and, and the pain that goes along with being in the fight game. And, uh, conversely, they've been with me and they've seen the, the, the pain, the sacrifice, the, the, you know, the nonstop uh, journey that it is to be successful in the world of sports entertainment. And, uh, there's a tremendous amount of mutual respect there. Because of that, um, I think it would be irresponsible for me at this point, uh, to them for me to say, oh yeah, I'm ready to be, become, you know, start a fighting career at this point. Because, you know, if, if, for me, if I was, it would be a cash grab. You know, I, I wouldn't be getting into it to be a uh, heavyweight champion. I'd be into it strictly for monetary purposes. And, uh, you know, for me, if you're, if you're not in it to be champion, then uh, you shouldn't be in it at all. I totally respect that. And, and believe me, Joe, you'd, we'd believe, if you did do it, you'd be believable because there's a real authenticity to your character that you don't always see. And I know you talked about it earlier with, with the way that you deliver your trash talk. How important is that to you? Um, I mean, the authenticity, I mean, I think, uh, I, I, I think there's certain ways that, uh, you know, in the real world that we address each other in, in times of conflict that, that really resonate with people. And, uh, you know, when I'm out there and I'm, I'm, I'm in the ring and I'm cutting a promo, I'm, I'm being small jail. I mean, that's just, uh, that's me handling the situation, uh, in, in the realest fashion possible and then responding and, and dating and, and trying to, you know, uh, get a rise out of people, uh, the best way I know how. And, uh, I don't really know how to fake it. I don't know how to do a character. I mean, a lot of what you see out there is exactly how I would talk to people in the street if I wanted to get to a fight. So, uh, you know, the, the premise is real simple, man. Just, uh, if you want it to be real, then, you know, do it like you would in real life. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, you're at 38, which I always feel is is an age where guys really enter their true prime because uh, everything you've learned sort of bubbles up. You're still at the end of your physical prime, but your wisdom, your experience is at an all-time high. I feel like I saw that in 2017. I thought that was the best representation of, of your character, of you as a sports entertainer. Do you feel like you're at the very peak of your powers, at the at the top of your prime at this moment? 
Uh, I feel I'm probably um, I'm the most I'm at the most comfortable with uh, who I am as a performer right now. I think uh, I, you know I very much understand uh, kind of uh, my uh, my 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 level of perception in the world, and I'm confident in it. And I think that's something that you know you talk about experience, which I think is very very important. And there's a very, very big key component to that. But I think another one is just, you know, you know, confidence and 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 that that that's that, that's the other key. You know, you bring those two things together. Um, you know, you oftentimes you get to find guys kind of flourishing simply because uh, you know, they, they know what they're doing right and it works. And um you know, a lot of the two I've I've actually had a lot more opportunity here in WWE than I've had in any other company ever. Um, you know, uh, even you know, harkening back to my days in TNA you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, I, I felt I had a really great mic work there, but, you know, they didn't see me as a character. They didn't see me as a, a talking character. Um, they saw me more as just this, you know, kind of primal uh, force of nature type of character. And uh, oftentimes uh, the uh, promo opportunities weren't as abundant. But, you know, here in WWE, they will let you live and die by that microphone. And I'm perfectly fine with that. And uh, it, it, was, it was kind of exciting for me to finally be in that environment where it was like, you know, they have no qualms about handing you a mic and letting you, letting you either hang yourself or uh, or become a superstar. And uh, uh, the minute they handed me that mic, uh, I was ready to go. <laughs> well, the latter has certainly taken place. Joe, we encourage everybody to check it out. Issue number 13 of Boom Studios' WWE comic book series on sale January 17th. The story undrafted with Samoa Joe, co-written by Michael Kingston. Joe, thanks so much for your time. We can't wait to see more of you out there, whether it's Roman Reigns or wherever you are headed. I want to see you with the belt around your waist. I'm going to be really honest here. But thanks so much for t- for chatting it and breaking it down with us. Absolutely. Thank you, man. I tell you what, Adam. On a pound-for-pound level, meaning the amount of minutes that I had with him, Samoa Joe gave a lot to talk about right there. What do you think is the, the biggest topic that jumps out of there? So he's he's done two interviews with us now, and every time. The guy's gold. I mean, he, he legitimately delivers. Um Breaks kayfabe, you know, enough that that just to to give the listeners and the interviewers exactly what they want. I liked the end of the interview, the his last answer to the final question when he's talking about that he was in TNA and he's their heavyweight champion and one of their most marketable stars, and they didn't let him talk on the mic and cut promos. Yet WWE, which scripts everything like ad nauseum to the point that we get disgusted by it almost gives him an open mic and allows him to do whatever he wants. <laughs> That's just incredible to me. I mean, Joe is so damn good on the mic. Our moment of the, what was it? Our feel spot moment of the year, uh, which Brian didn't necessarily vote as his number one, but I did. It was my number one moment was Samoa Joe kind of off mic taunting Paul Heyman and telling him, Hey, I'm about to choke you out in the middle of the ring. Like that was a feel spot moment. Samoa Joe's runs in WWE. The times he's been get giving the times he's been given major pushes to me are always top-notch, and, and the fact that TNA did not take advantage of that while he was with them is just stunning to me. Yeah, and, uh, you know, some of that is, is maybe an overlooking at his potential, but, you know, he's also grown a lot, you know, through Ring of Honor and evolved into, you know, that's why I asked him, you know, do you feel like you're at your prime at 38? Because he's he's never been this good, you know? Like, he's had some five-star or close-to-it matches in TNA, especially the the triple threats with, with AJ Styles, you know, some of the X Division stuff and all that, but, I mean... 
uh, I'm sorry, you know what I'm saying? The 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 quality high, the spots they had, you know, hanging from you know those matches they had in TNA with the Y. I forgot the name of it with the cable wires hanging above the rim. They had some crazy stuff. He was I think big... that is X Division. I mean, I I never really watched TNA outside of like a couple things, but I think that's what it is. And by the way, side topic: WWE just pay for the TNA library, put it on the network because there's a lot of holes you can fill in in people's backstories, and I'd like to catch up on a lot. Side topic, but. uh you know, Joe has really come to a level that I didn't think he could do. And, and you made, you know, the irony that in WWE, he's almost getting carte blanche. I actually feel like, Adam, why he's so good on the microphone. I think he's getting an extra level of clearance that other guys aren't. Now, he talked about the need to be authentic as a real badass, a guy who came up training MMA, a guy who, you know, obviously is a tough dude. But he said it was like the way that he presents almost a sociopathic vibe and the way he delivers and it's true. That's a great way to explain why he's so good. But the fact that he's working with Paul Heyman in a lot of these moments and Paul is allowed a extra level of clearance. You know, he hits his points, but he's allowed to fill in the blanks on his own. I get the feeling like Joe gets that same freedom. I think like they trust him. I, I definitely think they trust him. I wonder if it's stemming from Triple H's experience with him in NXT where, you know, he he brought him up to Raw and he's like, Vince, guys. He's a made man. Like he can do whatever he wants. I just worked with him for nine months or a year. He's fine. Like we can treat him the same way we treat John Cena on the mic. Um, that's I hope that's point. the case. And, you know, like you said, this was taped the day of his injury, meaning like the morning of. So before it ever happened, before he wrestled, we can talk a little bit, I think, about what his where his future lies in WWE really quick. Right, PC, because this is now the second opportunity in the last 12 months that he's been on the main roster and been prepared to get a massive, massive push and an injury has kind of sidelined him and, and seemingly stalled it. The first time, it was the first time I think he said that he ever had surgery in his entire career, right? Yes. That's right incredible. Where it looked like he was going right into Roman Reigns, right? Like at the time that Reigns went into that Cena feud, I wonder if the, their plans were, because it, yeah. it felt like they sped up Reigns Cena, right? Like that's a WrestleMania feud. We got it in the fall in September for kind of no reason. Joe gets hit injured in August. Maybe they fast forwarded that one. Maybe it was supposed to be Roman Joe with the Samo- Samoa, who's the real Samoa thing, you know? I mean, that's a feud we definitely want. And hopefully when Reigns does win the title, we get that for an extended period of time. And now it looked like he was about to start feuding with John Cena. Talk about WWE throws dream match around a lot, especially in 2017. No, no, no. Samojo John Cena is a dream match. And it looked like they were preparing to go that direction either for WrestleMania or during the build to WrestleMania to waste a couple months of TV time. So the fact that this guy got injured again, he hurt his foot. The timetable uh, is not set right now, but they did pull him from the mixed match challenge. And it doesn't necessarily seem like he's coming back anytime soon. I mean, this is awful luck for a guy who really should be massively and is massively over with the WWE universe. And you know what? Like, I didn't really like him in NXT that much. I'm going to be honest with you. He was he was good, but he was not great. He's great on the main roster. Maybe it was maybe it's me again with these suits, but they debuted him in a suit as Triple H's hitman when he attacked Seth Rollins in January 2017. Maybe that was part of setting the foundation of a first impression, but I mean, look, he had obviously good matches on top in NXT, but when you but Mike-wise and even in-ring-wise it he maybe it's just when he's in there with Lesnar when he's in there with Reigns he is somebody who can raise his game to their level and really almost surprise you and yeah this is obviously a big loss in these injuries because I want to see this guy in a massive run as a badass heel with the belt even if he's part of authority or if not and you know what give him Paul Heyman 
And I know they don't like to do that. They're, Paul Heyman and Brock have a special relationship. And I've talked to Heyman on and off camera in the past, Adam, about, you know, why aren't why aren't there more Paul Heyman guys? And he kind of touched on, you know, it didn't really work with Cesaro. It didn't really work with, uh, what was it Ryback yet for a hot second? Or was that Curtis? Ryback. Right Even CM Punk, it wasn't great. I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't great. You know, and, and we know we talked, you tossed it around, maybe Rousey. That's a great idea. Maybe Samoa Joe, right? And and of course you can do the the angle we thought they might over the summer, where 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 Paul turns on Brock, you know, because especially anytime Brock's going to be out for a while, that's not the worst idea. He doesn't need Paul Heyman, but imagine what he could be with Paul Heyman. That's that's. Well, I, the, I always thought uh, Paul turning on Brock would be to go with Samoa Joe. I mean, to go with Roman Reigns. Like that's what I want to no, see. That's happen. the ultimate that, heel. That's the ultimate heel, right there. That's that's, that's Hogan the ultimate heel NWO. move and yeah. fantastic. I mean, but I will. Sorry, what were you saying? I'm saying that's that's the equivalent of Hogan joining NWO. I mean, that's like a like that would that would change the the business for a little bit. Oh yeah, absolutely. But with Samoa Joe, I just don't think he needs the help. That like he doesn't need the help. Certainly in the ring, obviously, I don't think he needs the help developing his storylines, and he certainly doesn't need the help on the mic. But it's so I'd much. You know. No, you're in your you're right on that. But you know, it's interesting that he is a. Samoan version of Brock Lesnar in the way, even though he doesn't have the professional MMA career, he's got an MMA centric style, a lot like Brock. Maybe that's why they're when they do those heavyweight matches against each other. It's so, you know, it's so fun to watch. But, uh, you know, one other thing he touched on was the insides of what it's like to deal with Brock. He came real with us. And I know some of that is a little kayfabe dressing on top of maybe it's not. Maybe there's no kayfabe powder on there. Maybe when you work with Brock, maybe what Joe's saying is true. You got to be prepared to bring it. You got to be prepared that it's going to be so stiff it's going to feel like a fight. And you got to be so prepared that it may actually turn into a fight, meaning both guys are like laying it in and getting one up on each other. And I like what he said. If you don't come in like ready to fight, Brock's going to sniff that out and he's going to eat you up. And I, I assume that means he's going to he's going to hit you with like 16 germs in a row, right? Like, you know I mean, like, I, th- I think that's kind of what it meant, but like, you know, maybe it's a, it's a little more literal, you know, not literal, but I just feel like that kind of s- set a picture of what pro- it's probably like to deal with Brock. He's not going to give you an inch in the, in the booking. So that's why I celebrate every time Brock sells so good. Cause you know, when he sells for somebody, he respects them, by the way, you know that, right? Like when he did for AJ in that, in their dream match they had when he's doing it now for Stroman, what he did not do for Ambrose at WrestleMania, 32 ahead of his UFC 200 comeback. Uh, but, you know, I, Brock being salty, I love that that's real. I love that, like, it's it's a problem these guys have to deal with. No, I, I think that's great as well. I, it AJ Styles, the last time you spoke with him, seemed to be very candid and didn't mind necessarily talking about things behind the scene. The next time we speak with AJ Styles, because he doesn't necessarily fit the same mold as Brock Lesnar's other opponents that he's had recently. He's not big like Braun Strowman or, or John Cena or Samoa Joe or guys like that. I'm curious. I would like us to ask him, you know, what was your mentality going into fight Brock Lesnar and the fight itself? You know, how, how many hard ways did you take? Like how, how many <laughs> occasions did you catch something real, you know, from the beast? And I would be interested to see his response to that. By the way, we all love the WrestleMania 31 main event, Roman versus Brock match, of course, with Seth running in late. And we know that's probably going to be the WrestleMania match this year, but, uh, if you take in, in keep in mind what Samoa Joe just said about what it's like to deal, I wonder how quickly Roman had to earn Brock's respect. Because do you remember in that match, and I, it's fresh in my mind because I watched it this morning with my kids who were home from school. And do you remember that knee Roman hit on mm-hmm. Brock as his head was through the ropes, and they they kept showing the slow mo, and it it's like jarred his jaw. They had a couple hard way spots after that, and it's like I wonder if that was Roman 
could have been an accident. Could have been him knowing he had to earn his respect. But Brock gave him a killer receipt of that clothesline that knocked him off the apron right after that. That I wonder if that's what you have to do to Brock. Give him a little bit too much. Take the receipt and then you're good. I wonder. I wonder. I think that's interesting. Um, with a guy like that, it might be the case. That very well might be the case. And I just got myself fired up for, for Brock Roman, by the way. I don't, I don't hate that. I love that, actually. Uh, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I'm ready for Brock Roman, and I, I think fans should be, by the way. I understand that it's kind of even – it's the most predetermined thing of all time. They've literally spent the last 12 months building towards it. But that's a massive match, you know, taken on its own. The only thing that can really ruin it, it – well, two things that can ruin it. One, how they eventually get there over the last, you know, six weeks heading into WrestleMania, or eight weeks even, heading into WrestleMania, and then the outcome of the match. Because really, we know Roman It's probably going to spear him. Pin them, one, two, three, that's it. Okay, great. If that's what happens and it's a clean win, fine. But if they start messing around with storyline and and booking false finishes and so on and so forth, they can potentially ruin what should be a slugfest between those two in the main event of the biggest show of the year. Yeah, yeah just let those bulls. But you know, no, no, you know, slow down on the on the nineteen false finishes. I fully agree with that. Oh man, I'm fired up now. I'm I'm, I'm legitimately fired up for this year's mania. Th- that really, I think that was the turning point. This moment right now, book it. This was the turning point for me getting fired up. I want to be there in New Orleans. I want to see these these two guys go at it. I want to, you know, I want to have Roman. If Roman's going to go over like we think he is, he's going to have a moment. I want this moment to feel great for him because he deserves it. Because the moment of him beating Triple H didn't get the love. It, you know, after the nineteen hour show that that WrestleMania was. You know, he lost his moment to Seth the year before his moment against Taker was kind of ruined by Taker coming out looking like Akeem Olajuwon in a Raptors jersey. So let's have let's let Roman have his real Austin beating Rock or Austin beating Michaels moment. You know, why not? Yeah, that is I, you know, I never really thought of it that way. He has legitimately been screwed over from by outside forces, things beyond his control in multiple major spots and. Right now, everything's being built pretty damn perfectly for him to finally get that moment. And it would be nice to see him really get it in New Orleans this year. Well, special thanks to our guests, Adam Brandy Rhodes and Samoa Joe. And uh, yeah, that'll wrap up a bonus audio. We'll be back this week with our regular This Week in Wrestling review. For Adam Silverstein, this is the Brian Campbell. And you know how we exit every single time, Adam. If you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you've had my exact opinion of Red Heart. No, wrong button, but that was a nice surprise there. But anyway, we out.